Hey, it's Gabriel. And Alex. And this is episode 18 of Life on the Brink. And here we are with the second episode of season two. I really cannot believe how quickly this year is going. We hit season two a lot quicker than I was expecting we were going to hit season two. Yeah, we did. (laughs) There's a lot of gloomy stuff going on out in the world of late. So today we decided to bring you guys a bit of a good news story because, I mean, we kind of need it. Everybody needs a bit of a spirit lift at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, most of the episodes we do are species that are very quickly heading towards that brink of extinction. Yeah, but... In this episode, it's all about a native Australian rodent that somehow managed to claw its way back from the extinction list. So it was on it, and now it's not. <laughs> I love these. They're called the Gould's Mouse, and they are cute as hell. So the scientific name is Pseudomys gouldii? Pseudomys, Pseudomys gouldii, I think. Pseudo, yeah, it's maybe. definitely pseudo, and then I think it, M-Y-S, mys, mys, yeah, one of them, gouldii. <laughs> Uh, so I got the, the etymology for this one. And thankfully, I think I think I got pretty fair done by this week. I, it was all right. The last part, Gouldii, is pretty easy to get. It's based off Gould, John Gould, who's a guy who, like, everything in this country seems to be named after John Gould, except in this case, not named after him, not named after John himself, named after his wife, Elizabeth. There you go. Uh, who was an incredibly well-distinguished illustrator. She, she drew 84 of the nearly 700 plates that ended up in the first edition of the Birds of Australia, John Gould's sort of famous contribution to science other than cataloging some of the finches that Charles Darwin studied for uh, his studies in evolution. But yeah, Elizabeth was this incredibly distinguished naturalist. She unfortunately passed away of a disease in uh, at the age of 37 um, in the 1840s. And so it Gould's Mouse was named after her in honour of her by George Robert Waterhouse, who was a, a British naturalist around about the same time in that, and uh, named it after her in 1839. Uh, and the pseudomus bit is pretty easy. It comes from Greek, pseudo meaning false, typical pseudo uh, definition, and MYS, miss, is just ancient Greek for mouse. So it's just a so false fake mouse. mouse. But fake mouse, which <laughs> I, th- I saw some speculation, you know, it's on weird websites. We never know how true these are. Uh, but the speculation is it's because it's not muse, the traditional mouse genus, which is like where the house mouse and things like that are in, because oh, they're not cool. quite in that same genus level. They're called fake mice and the muse are called real mice because that's the Eurocentric version of the world that we all live in. <laughs> there you go. If you're having trouble picturing these fake mice, don't worry because our guests will cover what they look like in a moment. Our guest works in an ancient DNA laboratory, performing the same techniques used to study mammoths and mowers, but with a focus on extinct Australian rodents and is responsible for the rediscovery of the long thought extinct Gould's Mouse. So buckle up for some backroom museum talk, maybe a few more Jurassic Park references that Alex manages to squeeze <laughs> yeah. in and a good news story we all need right now of a species getting taken off the extinction list. This is episode 18 of Life on the Brink, featuring Dr. Emily Roycroft and Gould's Mouse. Yeah, I mean, last year you published this paper, um, which is how we came across you and the work that you're doing, about effectively crossing a species off the extinction list, which is not something we've really covered before. On this. Nope. <laughs> um, and we'll get into the, the whole story behind that and how you found them and, and how that all came about. But to start off, can you just give us the really basic starting point of what is a Gould's mouse and, and what was their story that led to the first quote unquote extinction? Yeah, sure. So 
there were two specimens that we know of that were collected um, of Gould's mouse in 1837 and 1857. And those are the last records for the species. So up until recently, we've believed that that was a species that went extinct sometime in the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, it's not been seen alive since that time. So in terms of what we knew about it and about its biology, it was very little because all we had were these specimens in museums. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with how they prep specimens in museums, but they're really just dry skins spread out on a <laughs> on a tray. So they don't look much like an animal. They just look like a, a flat pancake. So there's not much there for, for understanding this, this species and its biology and ecology. Um, so what we did have were very scarce records from early naturalists and these two specimens. Cool. I'm picturing like uh, there's those memes that go around of like the really poorly taxidermied like foxes. <laughs> I'm just picturing Yeah. That. <laughs> I mean, these aren't even taxidermied. So um, the ones that you see that are nice and on display in museums, they've been stuffed and staged. So they look a little bit like an animal, but these are... Um, sort of really just laying out flat um, on a tray that you don't see behind the scenes in a museum. (laughs) (laughs) So before they become the the taxidermy pancakes, uh, how do they, what do they look like? Do they look like a a common house mouse or something that most people would have seen? Yeah, a lot of native rodents do look superficially similar to the invasive house mouse. So this species is a little bit larger, about twice the size of the sort of mouse you would see in your house. Um, They're sort of shaggy coated. And what makes them really different is that they've got these very different behaviours to to an invasive species. So they don't like being around um, humans. They're very shy and nocturnal, quite elusive yeah, but other than that, we don't know a lot about how these species behaved. Do you know what they like feed on? So what we do know um, is that it's a mix of different things. So they're omnivores. So it's probably seeds and um, fruits as well as insects, spiders, and also probably fungi. Cool. So they are, might be fancy like the uh, betongs that we were talking about last episode. <laughs> oh, yeah, with the truffles and things. <laughs> yeah. um, so, And I also read that they, they do this like a combination of burrowing and nesting as well is, is you know, where they live. Is that, how does that work? How do, you, how do you balance between those two? Yeah, so that behavior is known from the shark bay mouse, but we presume that this species had that same behavior across, across its whole range and it's not just an isolated behavior. Sure. Um, but they, they do travel through tunnels at, at night, sort of overground tunnels, and then um, during the day they're sort of more underground rather than the sort of half-exposed tunnel system that they, that they run around in mm-hmm. to, to hunt food. Yeah. <laughs> so then the... The history then, you mentioned that there's been those two specimens and that's pretty much all we have from that 1830s, 50s period. Mm-hmm. Do we know what happened to them like, and why those are the last two specimens? Well, it's actually sadly a common story for a lot of native Australian, not just rodents, but mammals. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but rodents have been especially impacted by a few different factors that have really intensified since European invasion of Australia. So the introduction of feral cats is a big one for all small mammals, but especially for rodents, um, as well as foxes and land clearing. So all of these different contributing factors have likely wiped out their populations very rapidly. And these last two specimens that we have just happened to be collected before these populations were wiped out. And we now know actually that this species had a much 
more broadly distributed range and these two sort of isolated locations that it was collected from were just part of that so yeah it was just lucky that those two specimens were were collected that so that we were able to record it alive at some point and it's most likely that there are a number of species that we, we, we never knew about before they were they were gone um, but we don't really know because unless that species was collected then there's no record of it of having um, survived past 18 you know in whenever sometime in that period <laughs> damn um, well, i guess we should probably go back to sort of like the sort of start for you how did you get into the research looking into gould's mouse yeah so this project actually started back in 2016 initially we weren't focused just on gould's mouse we were wanting to look at all of the recently extinct native australian rodents so there's, there's eight species that we looked at, but there are actually more than eight recently extinct Australian rodents. But the, that was the eight that we could get material from museums. So we wanted to see if we could get the DNA out of these animals and then see if we could place them in their context of their living relatives. Um, and so that's where it all started, looking at these eight extinct species, um, one of those being Gould's mouse, which we understood to be a separate species at that time. Um, and it was only when we compared the DNA of these eight extinct species to all of the living native Australian rodents that we, we found out actually something else is going on here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to like, to go back to the start a little with the, like you had these eight species you were looking at. How do you go about getting samples for eight species doing the testing there? Yeah. Yeah. So these are the sort of eight, eight species that we have good usable specimens for. Um, so an example is the Gould's mouse specimen from 1857 is in Museums Victoria, which is the Melbourne Museum. Mm-hmm. And we're able to go there and take a very small sort of non-invasive piece of specimen from that so that it doesn't damage, you know, the specimen in any way, but we're able to get usable DNA out of it. And yeah, use techniques that are borrowed from ancient DNA. So the same sort of way that they get DNA out of Neanderthals and um, very old things like mowers and mammoths. Um, so we used a lot of the same sort of techniques to try to get the DNA. But actually, luckily, we found the DNA was a lot better preserved than we expected, which was which was great. It made the job a little bit easier. Right. Cool. Is it is it hard to get DNA out of a, a pelt that's been squashed in your museum? Like, what what sort of process is actually behind that? Yeah, it's a little bit difficult. It's a it's a labor intensive DNA extraction process. There's a few days where we sort of rehydrate the part of tissue that we've taken because they're very dry, try to remove any chemicals that were used in the preservation process. So often that's arsenic because that can interfere with the DNA um, in a way that makes it difficult to sequence. Um, So a few days of that kind of uh, DNA preparation and extraction and then quantifying to see whether there is actually any usable DNA in there after that. So it's a a lab-based protocol that takes around three or four days of, of work, each specimen, but you can do a few at, at the same time, but we were trying to avoid any cross-contamination. Right. So, yeah, and it was done in an, an ancient DNA laboratory, which basically means full PPE and um, sort of separate fume hood from everything else so that it doesn't get contaminated with other sources of DNA. Right. And is there, I mean, I don't, in my head, like, is there a possibility that you just end up with the museum hand from 1910 who picked it up and had yeah. a look at it? <laughs> yeah, you can. And that actually often happens. It can be contaminant from any sorts of things. The person who handled the specimen, it can be bacteria that's grown on the specimen. 
So all of those things are potentials. So when you get that DNA, you don't know for sure that it's the DNA of the animal until you sequence it and then you mm-hmm. find out what you've got. And, and we were able to see at the end that we did have what we expected because um, we were able to compare it to the living species and, you know, relatively ob- obvious if it is a rodent or if it's a bacteria <laughs> or something else that you weren't expecting, yeah. <laughs> a human. And, yeah, for sure. <laughs> was, was, did you get anything else weird then or was it just did you just manage to get the mouse DNA out and rodent DNA? So the, the protocol that, that I used for this was a selection protocol where it excluded all other types of DNA. So I had designed probes specifically for rodent DNA. Mm-hmm. So there would have been other things in there, but um, kind of part of the, the lab technique throws that all away and just keeps the stuff you want. So if we had been left with nothing at the end, we would have known there was no rodent gotcha. DNA to start uh-huh. with. Yeah. <laughs> How often does that happen? Like you start and you think you've got a really good sample and then you're left with nothing. Yeah, actually it happened quite often. I sequenced around 60 or 70 specimens in total throughout the course of this study and we ended up having maybe not even half of them work. So, yeah, there's a lot of times where the, the DNA just isn't there and that's okay because, you know, if it's not there you can't do anything about it, but it's very exciting when it is there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So then, yeah, you, I guess you had this idea of, of going through and, and look, fitting in these extinct rodents into the ones that are still around. Can you just tell the story of figuring out that one of them wasn't actually extinct anymore? <laughs> yeah, well, it was a bit of a surprise. I, was, I wasn't sure what I was looking at at first. I thought, oh, maybe is this a con- no, it can't be contaminated because, I, you know, I knew that I hadn't sequenced these fresh ones at the same time. And anyway, we double-checked that as well to make sure. But, it, no, it wasn't a contaminant. And then I thought, oh, that's – my first thought was actually, oh, that's a bit weird. It's just the same as same as this other species. Oh, all this time we've thought it was its own thing. And I almost thought that's a bit disappointing at first. But then I, but then I realised what it meant. And it, it took me a day almost to, to fully comprehend, oh, actually this is – very exciting. I, I was kind of hoping it was going to be something very different and very new compared to all of these living species. I don't know why I had that mindset to start with. Um, but yeah, when I, when I realized, oh, actually, this means this species is no longer extinct. It was, well, it was both exciting and also quite sobering because it, it really highlighted, wow, you know, that, that was the range of this species beforehand, because mm-hmm. these specimens are not geographically close at all. I think that's why I, my my head didn't quite understand it at first because, you know, we're talking about an island off the coast of Western Australia where this um, shark bay mouse still persists and, and the specimen I was looking at was from the border of Victoria and New South Wales. And so for those two things to be the same, um, yeah, it really makes you realise, oh, this this species was very broadly distributed and it now only has this single island that it's persisting on it's, really opens your eyes to how dramatic its collapse has been. Yeah. Was that, what, what were you looking at at, at at that point when you get that result? Is it like a, a, uh, just a bit of stats that pumps out a result that's like, oh, these things are the same? Like what, what, what is it actually, what do you so see? It was, a, <laughs> it was a phylogenetic tree. So I don't know if you are familiar with that, but um, I'll explain it just briefly. So if you could imagine a family tree where you have all of your family members and all of your other more distant relatives together um, and they're all each a little kind of, box at the end of this tree, everyone who's living, a phylogeny or a phylogenetic tree is that sort of concept, but for species. And so we're looking at how all the different species are related. And we sort of look at the lengths of the branches between species to understand how closely related or how distantly related they were. 
And when I put all these species together in this phylogeny, I could see that these two specimens of the Gould's mouse and Shark Bay mouse were falling out exactly in the same spot. So <laughs> it wasn't really any good explanation for that other than that they're the same species. <laughs> so you saw this and you were just like, oh, that's a bit bit boring. And then do you remember when it kind of hit you that it was like, holy crap, this thing's still alive? Just like, <laughs> Yeah, I do remember. Actually, I, found the, I got the result a, a few days before Christmas yeah. and um, I kind of was going on leave and I just thought, oh, look at this when I get back. And then as I was... The next day I was thinking, I was sort of just playing on my mind and yeah, I just, it occurred to me, hang on a minute, this is, this is very cool. <laughs> um, so it took a few days to process and then when I got back from Christmas, I was telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get the, um, the mouse from WA to compare it to? Where does that come from? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the work that I did was using specimens from museums, even for a living species. So right, over okay. the over the years, almost all species at some point have been collected and lodged into museums. And when that's happened in more recent decades, museums often have something called a tissue collection or a DNA tissue collection. So it's where they take part of the specimen specifically and freeze it. So that was how we got most of the different species from from around Australia, so unfortunately not a lot of field work. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit of a bummer. (laughs) Although museums are cool, I was going to say, I I go to them pretty frequently, but I feel like going into the back where you can see all the extra stuff would be a lot lot more interesting. Yeah, it's amazing. I actually sort of, I worked at the Melbourne Museum for a few years while I was doing this work, and the first time I went back sort of behind behind the scenes, I was shocked. It's amazing how many specimens there are that the public don't usually get to see. It really blows your mind. That's so cool. (laughs) Do you ever get like specimens where, because I'm assuming they're all tagged, but Mm -hmm. without the tag, do you think like, are there just some where you'd have absolutely no idea what it is you're looking at? (laughs) Yeah, often they've lost their tag. I'm going to say often, but there are a small number of, of specimens that have over the years somehow lost their tag. And sometimes they're obvious as to what they are, or sometimes they've been mistagged and you're just looking think, how did you think that that was? I, I saw, I can't remember what it was now, but there was something that was tagged as a rodent that was clearly a small marsupial. And, you know, you just have to wonder who. <laughs> was, there, was there ever a moment then when you were like, oh, maybe all of these these mouse mice that I think are an extinct species have been mistagged? Did you have to like double check that these specimens were legit? Yeah, there's always a possibility that they're mistagged. Um, they're often type specimens, which means that they're kept in, often museums will keep these in a, in a special separate section in the right. collection because they're of particular significance. So a lot of the extinct species, there are only one or two or a small number of specimens that exist. And so they sort of protect them a little bit more than the average specimen. So it's less likely that they're mistagged, but it's it ha- has happened a few times that they've been misidentified as being a member of this extinct species, but then they turn out to be something else um, right. for, the, for, the, for the ones where there are a number of different specimens. Where there's only the type, then the type's just the type and you have to... <laughs> if that's wrong, then the whole species classification is wrong. Right. And then the population that's left then, can you give us a, a bit of a rundown on what, what their situation is? Yeah, so... There's a natural population on Bernier Island in um, Western Australia that's off the coast of Shark Bay. Mm -hmm. That's the only remaining natural population of the species that we know of. 
and it's being closely managed by um, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy in collaboration with the Western Australian government. And they've since done, I think, two translocations of the species onto other islands. So there's now also a population on another one of the islands. I think it's Doré Island, which is near Bernier Island. So, All righty. So, Gabe, Bernie Island and Dora Island. Yep. Jumping in, doing our location thing. Bernie Island and Dora Island are in Shark Bay, which is in smack bang in the middle of WA's west coast. And uh, basically why we wanted to bring this up is because she's going to mention in a bit just how big Gould's mouse range used to be. And I want you to keep this figure in your head. Because the size of Bernie Island is six hectares. That's their current range. Yep. And just keep that in your head when we get up to what that range used to be. We'll get back into it. There's more than one population of the species left now, thanks to conservation efforts. But as you can imagine, that's a small area for a species that, you know, that that's all we've got left of it. And it's very possible that something could happen at, at those locations or that, if it's not managed carefully, that cats could get introduced or other invasive rodents. So it's really important that those management efforts continue there. And I think that they're now also looking to reintroduce the species onto the mainland. Oh, cool. So I know I know that, they, they, they they, I guess, these two specimens were found, you said, near the border of like New South Wales and Victoria. Is there any sort of like estimate for what their original range was? Was it like almost like the entirety of Australia? Yeah, so we've got sub-fossil records from South Australia, uh, also from parts of the Northern Territory, from mainland Western Australia, um, which indicate that this species up until sort of almost present day was distributed all through that region. Um, There's also actually a specimen that was collected in Alice Springs, which was previously given a different name, the Alice Springs mouse, but we now know that that's the same as as Gould's mouse too. But that specimen was so badly preserved that we weren't able to get any DNA from that one. But, yeah, so we've got this specimen in the Hunter Valley, specimen on the border of Victoria, New South Wales, one from Alice Springs, and then sub-fossils in the intervening area, which indicate that the species was distributed most likely almost continuously through that area up until some recent time. Damn. So it's the kind of thing where if you walk in an area in Australia and you find a, a fossilized mouse, it's probably a good mouse. It could well be. <laughs> um, from such a large range to only naturally found on this one tiny island now, is there any issues that they have with like inbreeding? Yeah, so the species genetic diversity is very low, as you could imagine. It's had this massive bottleneck from a huge continentally distributed species to a single island. And when species are on a single island, it's very difficult to prevent inbreeding. Hey, it's us just super quickly, Alex, bottlenecking, inbreeding, what are we talking about? Okay, so basically in genetics, what bottleneck refers to is when a large population gets dramatically reduced to a small size. And then if you're trying to basically bring that population back up again, there's only a very small genetic diversity captured. And so you might end up having a larger population again, but it has a very, very small genetic diversity. Which means you just get all sorts of inbreeding and heaps of other stuff going on. They can't adapt as well if there's any changes they need to adapt to. Yeah, not, not good, not fun. 
Not a fun time at all. Pretty quick path yeah. to extinction. We'll get back into it. <laughs> we compared, actually, part of this study was that we compared the genetic diversity of the remaining population to what the mainland population would have been before they became extinct. And it was, it's just a, it's almost nothing. It's almost the equivalent of having one individual in terms of genetic diversity. So the bottleneck's been incredibly severe. And yeah, this makes it very challenging for species to sort of in long term persist to a changing in a changing environment because that genetic diversity is what is the basis for adaptation. And when species don't have that diversity, they are going to find it very challenging to um, adapt to new things like climate change and other threats that they might face into the future. Because they are just on an island on their own and haven't been, and there hasn't been a, a, a flux of animals coming off the mainland, which I guess is what usually would have happened. There would have been, you know, like individuals popping onto the island every now and then off Shark Bay. Does that mean they've pretty much just been sitting there isolated inbreeding for 150, 100 years now? Yeah, exactly. And likely they were there for a lot longer because this was an island that would have been connected to the mainland at the um, last period of low sea level. So that would have been at least at least a thousand years. I'm not sure exactly when that would have would have been. So there may have been the, the odd mouse that made its way over that water in the last 900 years before they went extinct, but it would have been few and far between. So that additional genetic diversity that you get randomly from the mainland is pretty minimal anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's been probably been hundreds or thousands of generations that they've been isolated there before this species on the mainland became extinct. Far out. With such low diversity, I, if a single disease comes in, the, the entire population could basically go down. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely precarious for any species to to only be in one locality. Mm. So if there's just this one, well, one genetic group left, you said it has the genetic diversity of just a couple or one, you know, mouse originally or naturally. What do you do in that situation? Like, did, what what's the the way forward then? How do you introduce new diversity into such a bottlenecked group? Yeah, it's very challenging. In other situations, it may be that there's not just one population left, there's maybe two or three and and you can mix individuals so as to sort of generate some new diversity from natural sources. But in this case, there's not and there's really nothing with current technology that we can do about that. There's a prospect that now that we know what the previous genetic diversity was by sequencing these species from the mainland, theoretically you could use that information to artificially introduce genetic diversity into individuals and put them back into the population, but that's not somewhere that we're at yet. So in the meantime, all we can really do is hope that we can, say, reintroduce them to the mainland in a situation where their population size is going to grow enough for them to accumulate their own genetic diversity over time. That takes hundreds or thousands of years because you know, with cats and foxes on the mainland, it's going to be very difficult for the species to do that unassisted. Mm. Just going back to, I guess, introducing the diversity from like the samples that we have, would that work in the, I guess, the way that you'd sort of clone them and then introduce the clones into the other population? Yeah, theoretically what you could do, well, what I was imagining when I said that would be taking the genetic material from um, one of 
the living animals and modifying it with something like CRISPR. Hey, we're just going to cut in again because I couldn't remember what CRISPR stands for and I feel like quite a few people might not actually know what it is. And I also wanted to say that I got very, very overexcited there because I thought she was referring to cloning like in Jurassic Park. But she's actually referring to a much more realistic <laughs> thing, which is CRISPR. <laughs> I'm sure they could clone. I don't know how they'd get the, the genetic diversity into the cloning because cloning is effectively you take uh, a, a fertilized egg, you suck out the chromosome from that, you take the chromosome from the body cell of a different animal and you stick it in and you do that with a lot more detail than than what I can explain in two sentences. You can end up with a dolly the sheep, right? You end up with yeah. a clone. But in terms of just interjecting more diversity in, uh, possibly from other species or, or potentially just from within the Gould's Mouse that are around to try and maximize the diversity. You can use CRISPR, which is clustered regularly into space, short pallid, palindromic repeats, uh, CRISPR for short. And, and it's what just, that means in English? It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's well, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing is just a type of, of editing which is sort of hijacking something that bacteria can do. Um, and you can train it to cut very specific parts of a genome. So it's a way of, if you get into the early stages of a, a fertilized egg, uh, you can theoretically chop and change a bit of the DNA. If you know specific parts that do specific things uh, and, and, and give useful diversity um, or know things that are deleterious that you want to get out, you can potentially use something like CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing to do that. But this is very early stages. Like this Ooh, is the yeah. sort of stuff that's going to be, <laughs> that's being pioneered for use in the de-extinction project for the woolly mammoth, where they're taking an Asian elephant's DNA, chopping and changing certain parts and turning it into something that looks and acts a bit like a mammoth. So this is a long way off from being used in the conservation of a very rare niche Australian mouse. But... <laughs> Hopefully, in the future, it is day. something that is accessible enough that it can be used to just mean that these sorts of inbreeding issues in super rare species is just a thing of the past. But yeah, that's CRISPR. <laughs> we'll get back into it. <laughs> By doing this, we know that that's change that doesn't isn't deleterious for the species because we know that that that, that um, genetic variation was previously present. Whereas when you try to do it any other way, if you didn't know what variation was present in a species you may just be introducing harmful mutations that's so cool so it's like i guess you know that this has already sort of like come about naturally so it's not like you're just completely coming up with a brand new sort of diversity and just throwing it into it <laughs> it's just uh yeah but but that's something that's not really been done before but but if we did ever go down that track this sort of situation would be one where i could imagine it being a potential because we we kind of we have that information from the species in recent past, and we're not trying to do something crazy like bring back a mammoth, um, <laughs> which is something that gets a lot of media, but I think is a little bit further off. Yeah, than, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But like like you mentioned, though, it's I mean that's one one issue that that these mice are now dealing with. But the others is that all the threats that drove them extinct on the rest of the continent are still around and are probably exactly. worse than they were when they actually mm -hmm. went extinct. So what yep. what else would need to happen to have these, even in a, a portion of what their former range was? Um, well, to start with, and I think this is what's planned for the species next, is to look at introducing, reintroducing it to the mainland in predator-proof enclosures. And so mm. that will allow the population size to increase, but also prevent or at least create a barrier from those threats, especially from predation by introduced species. 
I, I think it's it's it'd be wishful thinking to say that we would eradicate these species from Australian mainland. I, I wish this was possible, but I don't I don't know if it is. But it's the biggest threat that faces all of our native species every day. And I, I, I really wish there was something more we could do about it, but it seems to be such an extraordinary challenge and there are lots of people working on it. So yeah. Well, maybe if it happens in New Zealand it can happen here too. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> You mentioned that you know, this was one species that you looked at and you were trying to see how, uh, was it seven species in total? Or eight, eight, eight species, eight, sorry, yeah. Eight, seven others, yeah, uh, yeah. were, were um, fitting into you know, all of the rodents that used to be in the country. We're here talking about the ghoul's mouse because it was lucky enough to pop up on a tiny island and escape foxes and cats and, and everything else there. But, could, I mean, what did the other seven look like? Because they're never going to get really talked about. Uh, because they didn't get a little island sanctuary for the last hundred years or so. So, do you, do you know much about the others? Yeah, we know a little bit. There, there's a lot of diversity there in terms of what they looked like. There are a number of hopping mice which went extinct. So, um, Notomies is the genus of Australian hopping mice. They're basically little bipedal rodents that um, look like little tiny mini kangaroos. <laughs> They're adorable. A number of those larger bodied hopping mice are among the species that um, became extinct. There's also a, a species of rabbit rat. So there are two rabbit rats in Australia. One of them is still around in very small numbers and the other is extinct. And these are quite large um, animals. And if you have a look at rabbit rat on Google, you'd be able to see that they're, they're very different from what you'd imagine a rodent to look like. They're, they're large and very distinctive looking, and, and they were described as, as being common in the 19th century by na early naturalists and now are either completely extinct in, you know, in the case of one species or only sort of a small fraction remaining in the other. Hey, it's us jumping in again here. Uh, White-footed rabbit rats, Alex. You you had a look at these. <laughs> you found some fun I photos. I did. They are so... If you're listening to this episode and you're like rats, rodents, not really my thing, give these things give these things a quick squiz because uh, they are wild. They basically look like some sort of combination between a rabbit and a rat. So the name like literally right on the head, but <laughs> they look super cool. And if you need to see more cool rodents, uh, she goes on to mention a bit later, water rats or Akalis, and they are adorable. Well worth checking out if you've never seen one before. <laughs> and not invasive. Like I yeah, thought for a long time and a lot of, they look like big rats and they're not. Yeah. They're these amazing native species uh, that um, usually can be distinguished by a white chunk on the end of their tail. It's Ooh, kind yeah. of, it's cool that we have these Rikalis around, but it's also just sad to know that there are these seven other species and so many on top of them that are just gone now that we'll never really get to see. All we see are these illustrations, which look like someone wanted to make it look as much like a squirrel as they could and, and sort of <laughs> yeah. drew it like that. But we should get back into it. Uh, let's go. Yeah, and, and a number of the other species looked similar similar to, to what Gould's mouse would have looked like, a small sort of more standard-looking rodent. But, yeah, there's a lot of diversity in na among native rodents. There are, I think, something around 65 species that are still, still around, and um, they range from aquatic, the, the aquatic species Hydromis, which is the Rikali, you might see swimming swimming around your local waterway. It looks a little bit like a 
like a platypus sometimes when it's swimming, but it's actually a rodent. <laughs> and yeah, hopping mice, tree living species, um, species that build pebble mounds as part of their behavior, stick nest building species. So there's lots of diversity and unfortunately a lot of them have already been lost. Mm, but it wasn't like these were really obscure species that were existing in one little patch that got wiped out. Like most of these were like the Gould's mouse found all over the place. Yeah, as far as we know, we just know the spe- from we, we only really know the specimens that were collected, yep. but we can look at anecdotal evidence about how common the, these animals were before they they became extinct and in most cases it does seem like they had very broad distributions and probably large population size and it also um, the the DNA evidence seems to suggest that as well. So from from our study, we estimated the genetic diversity of each of the eight extinct species that we looked at, and they all had relatively high genetic diversity at the time that those specimens were collected. So right before they became extinct, they had the sort of genetic diversity that we see in stable species today. So what likely happened was that they were wiped out so quickly that it didn't even leave any genetic signature of decline in their DNA. Far out. And I guess we have no idea how many species were lost as well because so many of them probably wiped out and there was no sort of samples or records taken. Yeah, exactly. So what we know of is just a minimum estimate for the number of the number of species that we've lost. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, should we jump into some audience questions, Alex? <laughs> yeah, man, that might pick us up a little bit. Yeah, because um, I've picked out two. Um, and I think you've got one or two as well, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. So we'll start with one from Peter, which is, uh, we, we touched on it a little bit because it's about the, the whole story of figuring out that it was the Gould's mouse. Yeah. Did she, she wanted to know, um, how quickly it was, uh, that you knew it was this species and also what sort of authentication do you have to do that this is like how, how much do you have to test this to go, is this real? <laughs> yeah. So the first step was validating that it it was in fact a real result and it wasn't a contaminant. So there are a few things that we went through there to make sure that this was actually um, what it seemed to be, but we were able to do that and also um, validate that for both the two specimens of Gould's mouse. So we knew for sure that it was a real result. Um, And then in terms of how quickly, it's actually quite a bit of a process getting getting the data back from DNA sequencing. So it's, um, we were using what's known as phylogenomic sequencing. So it's uh, a lot of data that comes back from um, the sequencing machine. So it takes sometimes a few weeks to process that. And then um, doing the analysis, which was the phylogeny that I was talking about earlier, as well as some other population level analyses that, that I did to follow on from that to confirm that that level of differentiation of the two specimens was actually at a species level. I have one more um, from Cass. Is this the longest game of hide and seek ever recorded? <laughs> uh, well, that's um, that's it's interesting because I mean we did know that this species was was there. It's it's um, not that we rediscovered it mm. on on Vernier Island in Shark Bay. We just knew it as a diff- under a different name. So it was, it was, I guess, hiding in plain sight in a way. <laughs> uh, I, but there may be other cases where this happened and species have similarly been misclassified. I'm not sure if it's the longest. 
Right. Uh, so following on from Kaz's question, we were really curious as to what the actual longest case of hide and seek was. Yeah, what's the <laughs> what longest time game? between something that was we thought was extinct being found again? There was one example which did blow the ghoul's mouth out of the water, which is the Bermuda petrel, which was rediscovered 330 years after it was thought to have gone extinct. But Alex, Damn. it gets <laughs> even better. The coelacanth was, <laughs> the thought have, was thought to have gone extinct. It was rediscovered in 1938. Thought to have gone extinct 65 million years ago. <laughs> That's just a little bit longer. <laughs> what? They got a second one in 1998 according to World Atlas. Uh, and there's an estimated 500 left. Damn. If you don't know what a coelacanth is. Big fish. Look it up. Big groper looking fish. Super cool, but they look real ancient. <laughs> They do. Oh, ancient look it looks like the ancient, ancient, ancient grandfather of the seal of the of groupers. Yeah. yeah. Literally. <laughs> That's a perfect example. A perfect description. <laughs> and now we'll get back into it with a very special edition of Sue B's question time. <laughs> because this time we have both Sue B's and Andy Bezos gonna question. <laughs> um I was gonna say I've got a got a question from my dad actually, and it's <laughs> Unfortunately, a pretty kind of a depressing one, but uh, and I'll, 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 I'll say word for word exactly what he wrote. He said, given the rapid desolation of their population and the persisting feral animal populations, where does hope come from? <laughs> wow. That's a tough one. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think that what actually gave me hope in finding out this result was that Although we've lost these species, there's a lot that we can learn from these specimens and that this research is actually very important, even though the result is a little bit depressing. We didn't know this before, and I think this really sheds light on how important the conservation efforts are from here. Like we, we knew that the, the, the Shark Bay mouse, the mouse that's on this um, island now, we knew that, that that species was at risk, but I think we have a much greater understanding of the history of this species now and to understand that its population size was so large up until very recently. Although that's depressing, I think that the positive part is to know that this research can actually have a benefit for the species. And the more that we study these species, they are very understudied in general, native rodents, and the more that we can focus in on them and try to understand understand these historical factors about the processes that have gone on up until today, as well as sort of projecting into the future, then we've kind of got more of a basis for, for understanding and protecting them moving forward. Cool. So uh, I was going to say pretty, pretty good reason for hope then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and just as backstory, uh, Alex's dad and mum both write in every single week. And so we've started giving them their own little segment now. They're just, they force it on us. Did, did your mum write in as well this week? She did, yeah. <laughs> so mum's question, she had two. She wanted to know, um, how is the Gould's mouse different from a regular mouse? <laughs> That's a great question. I think a lot of people wonder that. It's it's Unless you've seen native rodents, it's a little bit di- difficult to to kind of visualize what they would look like and how they would be different from from an invasive mouse. I think one of the key key differentiations is the size um, and then also the the texture and color of the the coat of the species. So they've got this very shaggy 
more golden brown colored fur and they're really very beautiful if you have a look on google and you'll see some photos of the population from shark bay and they look similar to uh superficially they look similar to a house mouse but i think they're a lot cuter (laughs) (laughs) not biased at all (laughs) no bias at all no bias (laughs) um and then she just wanted to know uh why why are they so i guess why are they in such trouble especially when we see uh, sort of common common mice exploding in like mm. mouse plagues recently. Mm-hmm. So native rodents and house mice are very different. They're evolutionarily very different. They're around 12 million years between them. So they are both rodents, but house mice are from a different part of the world and the group that we have in Australia uh, have a 12 million year different evolutionary history. So they've evolved under very different conditions and um, house mice have this particular propensity for just flourishing in any possible situation they can. They'll take advantage anywhere and everywhere and um, they have these boom bust population cycles, which is what is has, has been happening with the mouse plague recently that they go through these huge booms and, and it's really quite crazy their numbers but these sort of things don't happen with our native species and they're very kind of naive to predators whereas house mice might be more familiar with the idea of being eaten by a cat or preyed on by a fox and so they're a lot more susceptible and they're just not able to to coexist with humans in most cases. So anywhere where humans have developed the land or where people are frequenting in large numbers, native species won't be able to persist. And there are some exceptions to that, like the Rakali, they seem to be able to do okay near human development. But yeah, most of the native species just can't deal with a sort of cleared land and high foot traffic situation, whereas um, invasive species basically love that. Do you want to ask your favourite question there, Alex? Uh, well so pretty much in every episode i get to this point and this is the first time i get to ask it this way do you ever think this species will go extinct again (laughs) uh i really hope not i don't like to think too much about that um but i think that there's a really fantastic conservation program going on this species is intensely monitored they're, they're tracking individuals and they sort of know very in very high, high detail about what's going on on that island. So I, I, I think that it's in as good a shape as it co- could possibly be, but any species that only exists on a small number of islands is at risk. And, yeah, of course it's possible, but I, I very much hope not. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that case then, for... People who are listening and people who you know maybe haven't heard of of the Gould's mouse or any native mouse at all, um, <laughs> what what are the best ways to to get involved to to do something and to actually help that effort? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things for native rodent conservation is actually getting people interested and excited and and realizing that these species are out there because you know I know a lot about them and it's part of my everyday, but it does still surprise me that. Um, the most often the conversation that I have with non-scientists is, oh, I didn't realize that there were native rodents. I thought it was just marsupials. And 
yeah, I mean, that's it's very difficult to get any support for something when people don't know that it exists. <laughs> and um, I think that if if we if they if native rodents had a higher profile, perhaps there'd also be a higher conservation priority for government. Of course, all species get get support from from government conservation programs when they're under threat, but uh, there are some that get more support than others, and koalas mm. are an example of that, they're very high profile, and they get a lot of funding as a result. But native rodents are just as important as koalas and are probably a lot more threatened. And if we're able to create that community awareness, then there'll be that, that sort of drive for, for government to do more and to pro- provide more funding for these programs to protect species that are literally on the brink of extinction. Hmm. I mean, it almost sounds, I was going to say from the sounds of things, they sound like even more, do even more for the, uh, I guess, the lo- local ecosystems because koalas kind of just sit there and <laughs> get drunk. <laughs> They don't really have too much functionality where these, these native rodents actually contribute. <laughs> All species are important. Oh, no, definitely. Not arguing that. <laughs> I don't have a vendetta against koalas. <laughs> uh, and uh, I guess the, the final question would be, um, if there's like one message that, you'd really want people to hear for conservation or like, I guess, native rodent conservation or just conservation in general, what would it be? I think that the most important thing right now is to reflect on what we've already lost in terms of native mammals in Australia and especially native rodents, but realise that it's not it's, it's not a death sentence for the, for the species that are still around. Like we've got so much opportunity right now to, to do the work to make sure that these species are protected and to understand as much about them and their, their remaining populations as possible. But to use that, that sort of depressing part of this story as that motivation to, to do something and to change the fate for these, for these persisting animals they're all really special. They're all really cool species and you can look them up and learn about how each of them are unique and contribute to their their local environments. And, and we don't really understand how their extinction will, will otherwise affect the ecosystem that will have consequences for lots of other species as well. So it's important to, to make sure that we're focusing on that into the next decades. It's a great message. Awesome. Well, in that case, thank you so much for for chatting about the Gould's Mouth with us. Thank you so much for having me. Episode 18 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara and Gurungai people. We pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. All of our thanks to Emily for raving about rodents with us. She's on Twitter with the handle at Emily underscore Roycroft. What a good handle to get. I know. I'm so impressed when people get their names as handles. Like it's, it's getting best. your name as the email is cool, but that I feel like people were on the ball with that. Getting your handle as your name, that's impressive. Uh, so go follow her at Emily underscore Roycroft if you want to follow along with her journey. If you can, we'd love it if you can give Life on the Brink a rating, review, follow, whatever you can. Find a button to do it on your podcast app of choice. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at a Life on the Brink so you can keep track of us between episodes. If you've just found us for season two, all of season one and a couple of bonus episodes of Life on the Brink are already out wherever you're hearing this. 
or you can find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. A couple more bonuses coming too. Woo! Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Angus Bazina for running the website. Thanks to Kyle Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Ta-ta for now.